All right. 1 Corinthians 14, 1 to 25. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be edified. Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you? unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction. Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as the pipe or harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are saying? You will just speak, be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. So it is with you. Since you are eager for gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. For this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret what they say. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my understanding. Otherwise, when you are praising God in the spirit, how can someone else, who is now put in the position of an inquirer, say amen to your thanksgiving, since they do not know what you are saying? You are giving thanks well enough, but no one else is edified. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, but in the church I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. In regard, um, in regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. In the law it is written, with other tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, but even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Tongues then are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and inquirers or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they are convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all. As the secrets of their hearts are laid bare, so they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. Good evening, everyone. Uh, if you don't know me, my name's Ken, um, and I'm one of the pastors here. Adding my welcome to Matt's, especially if you are visiting or newish to WBC, um, we're really glad that you've chosen to be, whether here in person or on the live stream. Now, as Matt has helpfully got us thinking, tonight we're continuing our series in the second half of 1 Corinthians, which we've called Perfect Mess. And right up front, I want to say that this chapter isn't particularly easy, not that I'm sure any of them are, um, but part of that's because Paul's argument has been building chapter on chapter, and we're coming to the pointy end of his argument that he's been building towards. He wants the mess 
to get tidied up. Now, the Deeper Podcast is a great place where you can ask further questions. I'm not going to answer all of the questions that you might have about Chapter 14 tonight. And you may still have questions about previous chapters that we've looked at, but you're still not sure how it all fits together. Um, it's a great place that you can send in your questions to the office. You can contact Kate there, uh, and we'll look at trying to cover those in the podcast, which gets recorded Wednesday and then posted online. You can look at that through our website or wherever you uh, subscribe to your podcasts. Uh, as always, we don't rely on our own ability to understand this passage, but upon God. So with that in mind, we're going to pray. As we do that, we're also going to pray for the Gamble family. Uh, many of you know that Joe went back to Ireland recently, again, after having been there last term. Uh, and the news came through this morning that her mum, Phyllis, uh, died. Uh, she was 93 years of age. Uh, and so as, as far as we know, Joe's going to stay there, uh, organize some of the details. And so we're going to pray for her and the family as well at this time. So let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for the letter of 1 Corinthians and the opportunity that you've given us over the last number of weeks and even last year as well to be studying it, uh, to be understanding the things that Paul wrote down uh, for a church uh, that had lots of issues going on and needed to hear with clarity uh, how to live. And so we pray uh, with thankfulness for the things that we've learnt over the last number of weeks. Uh, and tonight, again, we ask that by your Spirit, you would enable us not only to understand what's being said, uh, but that you would work in us so that we live these out. We put them into practice to your glory. Uh, we do pray for the Gamble family, particularly for Joe in Ireland uh, at this sad time of losing her mum. We pray that uh, you would comfort her uh, and her sister and other family over there. Uh, we pray for Michael um, back here in Australia and Nathan, um, that you'd be comforting them and walking alongside of them. Um, yeah, we thank you for her life and we pray that uh, being there would be actually really helpful for Joe in processing uh, this, this um, sad time. Uh, so we just ask again that you would be with us now, enable us to understand and respond rightly. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm guessing that most of you have never noticed that 1 Corinthians is more like driving lessons than a deconstructed coffee. A weird comparison, you might think. But give me a chance and I think you'll see what I mean. This, hopefully is deconstructed coffee. It comes at a premium price at your trendy cafe, separated into its component elements, making it a little bit different than traditional coffee. Apparently, it's considered peak hipster. I can't help but consider it to be peak nonsense. Surely coffee is much more than just its separate ingredients. In fact, the way it's put together by the barista is what makes it the reason that we go to a cafe to buy it. Now, in comparison, driving lessons by necessity start off in bite-sized pieces. We start off by explaining what the various pedals do. We add in the need to adjust mirrors, turn on the indicator, check blind spots, push in the clutch, let it out slow. No, 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 slower. <laughs> Stay in the middle of the lane, please. But this separation into component parts is merely to aid understanding. It's not the end product. We focus on one element at a time 
because that's all the learner driver can take in. But the putting it together is always the aim. And when you put it together, that reveals whether the little lessons along the way have been mastered or not. And so, for example, when doing a hill start, there's no point in perfecting your clutch and accelerator technique if you don't also check your blind spots. They're different skills and one, I think, is easier than the other, but it's their combination that makes you a safe driver or not. Now, I make this silly comparison because I think it highlights, helpfully, what Paul is doing in his letter to the Corinthians. Though he wasn't a hipster, centuries ahead of his time, he was deconstructing church. But his purpose in doing so was not to try and make church trendy. He did it to show what the Corinthians were doing wrong. Back in chapter 11, he pulled up both men and women for how they were dressing and talking in church. Following a trend probably in their society, some were communicating a message that contradicted the gender and the role that they'd been created for. Paul then condemned the selfishness that was on display when they shared in communion. A meal designed to symbolise their unity was dividing the church into VIPs and all the rest. In chapter 12, he wrote about spiritual gifts. The the Corinthians thought that whoever could display the most spectacular gift was clearly the most important person in church. But Paul showed that gifts are not an ability that somehow determines your ranking. The gifts are all different, but equally necessary, given by the Holy Spirit to individuals so that they will work together to build up the church. Chapter 13 followed straight on, and we saw that rather than a text for wedding ceremonies, it reveals the attitude that we must have as we express the gift that we've been given. And so we get to chapter 14, and it's like all the ingredients of church have just been laid out in front of us. And Paul doesn't stop there, satisfied with the presentation of a group of unconnected truths. Rather, he shows how they combine to answer the question, how should gifts be used in the church? How should gifts be used in the church? And we'll look at his answer under two headings. Firstly, lovingly prioritise communication in verses 1 to 25. And then secondly, kill the chaos by relinquishing rights in verses 26 to the end. So how how should gifts be used in the church? Well, firstly, lovingly prioritise communication. In verse 1, keep your Bibles open there because we'll look at the passage that was read, but also on beyond the end of that. So in verse 1, Paul combines love from chapter 13 with gifts from chapter 12 and prophecy from chapter 11. He's working in backwards order, which then leads into his contrast of prophecy and tongues, confirming that the Corinthians' problem resulted from a mistake mistake in understanding of gifts. Both tongues and prophecy were examples of Holy Spirit-enabled speaking in church. But rather than rejecting or devaluing tongues, as is a common response in Reformed evangelical churches like ours, Paul wants the Corinthians to understand the proper place of tongues. Speaking in tongues is a Holy Spirit-enabled ability to talk in a language that the speaker never actively studied. Though it's related to what happened back in 
Pentecost, as recorded in Acts chapter 2. Paul says here that when somebody speaks in tongues, it's just between the speaker and God, which is quite different to what happened in Pentecost because that was people speaking in languages of other people. Now, prophecy, in contrast, is between the speaker and all of those people who can listen around them. Prophecy is a spirit-given ability to use understandable words to strengthen, encourage, and comfort, as verse 3 says. It's because of their different target audiences that speaking in tongues builds up only the speaker while prophecy builds up those who hear. That's what makes them different, which means in practice that prophecy has more value at church than uninterpreted tongues, even though the latter may appear to be more spectacular, more spirit-inspired. It's really, really important for us to follow the details of Paul's argument here. Paul is not saying that speaking in tongues is bad or unhelpful in and of itself. Rather, where and how you do it determines whether it's appropriate or not. In verses 6 to 12, Paul explains the reasoning. For a speaking gift to have effect, to have benefit in the church, it must communicate. And so speaking in tongues won't benefit those listening unless they can understand what is said. This point is obvious in music, verse 7, in battle signals, verse 8, and it should be obvious in our speech at church that mere pufang kal jai dai. Amen? You can't say amen because you don't know what I'm saying. Now, to be very clear, I do not believe that speaking in Thai counts for me as speaking in tongues because I studied to learn it. But it does, I think, demonstrate Paul's point. I just said in Thai that unless the listeners can understand what is spoken, it has no value. But don't mishear Paul. Speaking in tongues is a valuable thing. It's a gift, enabling communication between an individual and God. And when it's done, it results in edification. It it builds up the speaker, verses 2 and 4. If somebody speaks or sings or prays in tongues in private, they may not even understand what they are saying, but as they speak, their spirit expresses truth to God And in that, there's a great benefit to themselves. They're built up. But that's okay in private, but unless tongues is translated in church, verse 9, it's just speaking into the air, hot air joining with the other hot air. If all present are not directly involved either by speaking or understanding what is said, tongues is completely pointless, no value. And so even though someone has the gift, that doesn't mean they will automatically use it when together with other Christians. Rather, they have two good choices. Firstly, they can choose to voluntarily not use their gift, knowing that the use of it won't benefit everybody. Or else, secondly, they can pray to interpret what is said so that it does have a communal benefit. And that can either be themselves interpreting or somebody else. While in practice, we might favour the former choice, Verses 13 to 17 seem to suggest that Paul encouraged the latter. He wanted Christians in church to pray with both their spirit and their mind, to sing with their spirit and their mind in order that all could understand. 
that it was both God-directed and others-directed. So a condition is placed on speaking in tongues when gathered. Make sure it's interpreted. But unfortunately, that's not the end of the lesson. In verse 18, Paul states, what was probably a shock to the Corinthians, he spoke in tongues more than all of them. The fact that he tells them this almost certainly indicates that they had never heard him speak in tongues at church, though he'd been the one that founded the church at Corinth. But he did speak in private, apparently very regularly. According to the Corinthians' faulty pecking order thinking, if Paul had made this known that he was a great tongue speaker, his apostleship would never have been questioned. But that is why he's avoided making the statement until this point. As valuable as the gift of speaking in tongues is, that doesn't mean that it's more important than other gifts or that it should get prioritised at church. In fact, to insist on the right to speak in tongues is actually a sign of immaturity, verse 20. As has been Paul's consistent application since right back in chapter 8, we have to think of we, not me. And so the question that determines how we act is, what will be of benefit to everyone? Will speaking in tongues make those gathered look at me or look to God? Who am I really doing this for? which surely means that this has application to so much more than just speaking in tongues. Will the expression of my gift lift me up or will it build up the body? Will my playing an instrument or singing lift me or the congregation? Will my preaching grow the body or will it grow my ego? Is my generosity or serving in kids' church or cleaning up after supper or welcoming people about investing in the other, or do I secretly long for others to notice what I'm doing? The clear principle is, again, that gifts are given to the individual to use for the benefit of the community. Using gifts to promote self rather than others when gathered as a church is a misuse of what God has given us. But even if we agree with that goal, life makes living this out difficult. In verse 22, Paul goes on to explain that even if we use our gift for others, not everyone will respond the same way. There's a big difference of outcome for Christians and for non-Christians, which interestingly, I think, shows that from the beginning, there have always been a mixture of both Christians and non-Christians gathered together at church. But again, Paul's logic is not immediately obvious. I think most of us assume that signs, verse 22, or what we often call miracles, are used by God for the purpose of changing people's minds. According to our logic, if someone sees something miraculous, they'll be convinced that God is real and powerful and they'll put their trust in him. But the quote from Isaiah chapter 28, verses 11 and 12 points us in a completely different direction. Very similar to what Jesus says about parables in Luke chapter 8, verse 10. Parables were not stories told with the aim of simplifying the message. Parables could only be fully understood by those who had already begun to follow Jesus, and so by design, parables kept people out. They kept unbelievers out and strengthened believers. 
Likewise, when unbelievers hear Christians speaking in tongues, the most common outcome is that they'll continue to reject God. You guys are out of your mind. Tongues, in this sense then, are for unbelievers because when they hear it, they remain unbelievers. And that is the appropriate outcome for them. Paul's point is that rather than changing people's minds, signs confirm the direction that people are already going in. Having clarified that, he says that therefore the advantage of prophecy to Christians especially is it's being understandable and it can bring about change, verses 24 and 25. Now, obviously that is not the change, that that change is not the outcome every single time, but it is right for us to emphasise making the message as easy to understand as possible, which is why we have to be very careful particularly the longer we're a part of churches, if we've been Christians for a long time, it's very easy to start using Christian jargon. While the perspicuity of Scripture on substitutionary atonement achieved through the blood of the Lamb is a beautiful thing, it's not much use using those words with a non-Christian. While they're true, they don't actually communicate. And so, like uninterpreted tongues, they're just hot air spoken into the air which is why we also have to be aware of people's backgrounds so that we can present the message in a way that's more likely to be understood. This encourages us to use age-appropriate teaching for kids and youth. When it comes to using gifts, we must always prioritise communication over the spectacular. Gifts must build others up rather than building up the one with the gift. Which leads Paul on to give some practical instructions. What's our second point? In verses 26 to 33, Paul instructs the Corinthians to kill the chaos. It seems that in the Corinthian church, everyone was seeking to show off their spiritual gift with the result that no one was listening to anyone else. Some were singing, others were prophesying, still others were speaking in tongues. And it was all happening at the same time. People competed to be heard, believing that what they had to say was the most important thing because it had come to them from God. And Paul rebukes them for their immaturity. This way of expressing their gift was actually an abuse of gifts. The expression of our gifts should not cause disorder but peace. So instead of fighting to be heard, speakers are to take turns. I think what's described in these verses sound a lot more like home group than what we're doing right now sitting in this building. It's very likely that church or possibly even churches at Corinth met in people's houses as Acts chapter 18 verse 7 indicates. And so at absolute minimum, this means that we shouldn't be hogging the conversation at home group. God speaks through all. So we need to encourage and facilitate everybody contributing. And when someone speaks, it's then right for the group to evaluate what has been said rather than just accepting that absolutely every opinion is right. Weighing prophecy is to compare it with what God has already revealed. Now, my hope is that home groups this week will together think more about what considering the other looks like, what building others up looks like in that context. 
But applying Paul's instructions to our gatherings on Sundays, I think that rather than prescribing an unchanging order of service in which we must have two or three tongue speakers who are interpreted, followed by two or three prophets every single week, the universal ongoing application of this passage is about motive and expression. If the motive for my expression of my Holy Spirit-given gift is, that, is so that people will be impressed by me, then I should keep my mouth shut. Make sure that the motive is always and only for building others up, verse 26. And once I've got my motivation right, my gift must also be expressed correctly, meaning that we have to observe what's going on in the meeting and decide whether it's appropriate to speak or to refrain. As he did way back in chapter 8, Paul shows that even when we have the right to do something, there are times when we'll choose to relinquish our rights for the sake of others. This makes it very clear that when the Holy Spirit gives us gifts, he doesn't overpower us. We're not forced to speak because he's in us. Spiritual gifts are not like what we read of in the Gospels when demons took over people and, and they couldn't control themselves, whether it's tongues or prophecy or something else. While a gift is spirit-given, it always remains under the control of the recipient. While the Holy Spirit works through us, he always works in conjunction with us, waiting for us to express what he has enabled us to express. We have a choice. And verse 40 summarises that we should express our gift in a fitting and orderly way, which I think is like a bookend on the end of the chapter, gives us some direction in understanding the tricky verses, verse 34 and 35. If you've got your Bibles, open them, otherwise they're up on the screen. Verse 34. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in church. Pretty strong words, eh? Um, these verses are not crystal clear to us, and some people uh, just wish that they weren't there. But part of the issue in understanding them is the earlier instruction in the book. If you go back to chapter 11, Women can and are encouraged to pray and prophesy. So how can there now be a total ban on women speaking? The fact is almost every single commentator accepts that there is some kind of limitation on the extent of Paul's apparent prohibition against women speaking at church. So, for example, while 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12 places a related but different restriction on women teaching and having authority, silence here in verse 34 and 35, if taken, if they're isolated and they're just understood by themselves, it would be far more strict. No singing, no praying, no having a chat over supper as we go out there later on. Many commentators propose that the behaviour that led to Paul stating this restriction was women in Corinth was somehow disrupting the gathering. Most commonly, it's suggested that, as in Jewish synagogues, men and women sat in different sections, 
and uneducated wives were calling out to their biblically literate husbands for clarification of what somebody had said from up the front. Others suggest that women are not to be involved in the weighing of prophecy. And both of them are possibilities. But the truth is that like my very poorly acted one-sided telephone conversation, the start of this series, we don't know exactly what triggered Paul's instruction. He doesn't tell us. He doesn't give us enough information. I would love to give you tonight a clear and simple summary. But if we accept that Scripture never contradicts itself, then these verses are complicated. And if driving a car is tricky, why would we think that doing church is any easier? What we can be sure of is that as in the case of tongue speakers and prophets, women in Corinth chose not to speak for the sake of the other. This is not a, dis- a diminishing of women's value. doesn't mean that men are more important. Rather, for the sake of the whole church, individual women chose to limit what they could do. Now, whether it was a cultural reason or part of the creation order, I encourage you to all continue searching the scripture and interacting with others who've come to different conclusions to your own. Wherever you land on this, all of us must recognize that while Paul is talking about separate components, it's in their combination that this all must make sense. To so focus on verses 34 and 35 that we ignore what else is happening in the chapter is like analyzing the the coffee shop in the beaker and ignoring the rest. It is important to get all of the components right. But as verse 39 shows, we can so emphasize what we believe is right and attempt to enforce it by, by putting fences around things that we end up throwing out something of great value. As you go out tonight to have coffee or tea, some will think that I've said far too much. Others that I haven't said nearly enough. But perhaps the most important thing in listening to 1 Corinthians chapter 14 is to recognize that it primarily puts a question to each one of us. Rather than telling others what they can't do, the better question is to be asking ourselves, what is my motive in giving expression to my gift? Is it for me or is it for we? How should gifts be used in the church? Let's all use our gifts to lovingly build one another up. Let's communicate God's message clearly. And let's refrain from using our gift when its use would cause disorder. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you again for the book of Corinthians uh, and thank you for the opportunity that we have had to study it. Uh, We thank you that many people down through the centuries have tried to understand exactly how this should be lived out. Uh, And we recognise that uh, there's so many things going on from our culture, uh, from our history, from our experience that may make this tricky. Uh, But we want to most of all uh, be honouring you. And so we pray that as we continue to reflect on this, both ourselves and together with others, that you would continue to make it increasingly clear how we can use the gifts that you have given us to build up your church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.